You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. If our movement remains united and confident, then we will shatter the forces of tyranny and we will unleash the glories of liberty for ourselves and for our children and for generations yet to come. America's golden age is just ahead. And together, we will make America powerful again. We will make America wealthy again. We will make America strong again. We will make America proud again. We will make America safe again. We will make America glorious again. And we will make America great again. Thank you very much. God bless you. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 501. 501 episodes are now behind us, or I guess 500 episodes are behind us. This is episode 501, and today is Friday, November 18th, 2022. That at the top, uh, besides being uh, disturbed down with a sickness, was the very tail end of former President Donald John Trump's big announcement from this week that he is running again for president in 2024. He is running for a third time. If you'll remember, he ran and won in 2016. He ran and lost in 2020, and he is hoping to run and win again in 2024. So I want to talk about his announcement speech. I want to talk about his candidacy. I want to talk about what my thoughts are. And yes, honestly, my feelings. I I don't talk a lot about feelings necessarily on this podcast. I want to talk more about facts and good arguments and being reasonable. But I do want to talk about how I'm feeling about this run this announced run, much anticipated. Everyone saw it coming. It really was not a surprise that he's running again. But first, I want to talk uh, on a more personal note, a few things. One, there's sickness going around in general. Lots of people we know seem to be getting it. And we're right on the verge of Thanksgiving next week. Next Thursday, as you probably know, is Thanksgiving here in the United States. I am off Thanksgiving Day. I will probably be working all the other weekdays next week. 
working from home. Hopefully, I just got set up yesterday with remote access and a company laptop. I am a new hire, non-employee, contractor, embedded contractor, green badged and all that for Occidental Petroleum, doing controls programming work. And it's just in time. Yesterday was snowy. Roads were bad. It was cold. Our electricians uh, with Piper Electric who were out there with me, they had some work to do in getting sites prepped on the wiring side of things, getting everything situated that way for an air compressor skid upgrade, <clears throat> uh, the ability to pull in faults on their air compressors, uh, reset those faults, recognize those faults, and be able to address them is a value. And I'm doing the programming piece of it. But without remote access, I had to go to site and be with the electricians and wait on them out there on site in my pickup. And we just agreed yesterday it would be much better, much the better, much more efficient. If they can work on the prep piece, I can work on the programming piece from home. Every hour I'm not driving to and from site or between sites is that much more time I can spend on the programming piece. So I'll be working on that through the weekend, uh, particularly if illness in the mullet household keeps us from following through with the plans that we had for this weekend. We had some really exciting plans that might just not work out this weekend. We'll see. But tomorrow being Saturday, there was a big game day planned for this uh, tabletop strategy game called Twilight Imperium that my oldest son and I, we were going to go and play with some friends from church and it was going to be an all day thing. It's a long, long board game similar to Civilization VI, but board game style and set in space. And you each play one of these uh, alien races that has a particular set of attributes and perks and strengths and things that they're good at, things that they're not so good at necessarily. You know, if you have a strength that nobody else does and everybody has a strength that nobody else does or a combination of strengths, well, that also means that you've got vulnerabilities because if you don't have everybody else's strengths, but they do, uh, you're always having to kind of keep an eye on uh, who's got what advantages and how they're uh, leveraging those advantages to uh, achieve the objective, right? To win, right? The, the big idea of the game is not just to win, but it is to win, right? Somebody's going to win if you're going to play it all the way through. Otherwise, why play, right? But it's a win, to get together with friends, to have a good time. We were planning on that for tomorrow from probably nine to nine. <laughs> Let's be honest, uh, maybe nine to five only. And yet with several of my kids sick, my wife being up most of the night with our youngest, it just might not work out. It might not work out for us to play that big game tomorrow. We might have to delay it and put it off for another weekend. But then so also too... Uh, we were planning on going over to some friends of ours' uh, house on Sunday afternoon, right after church. They invited us very graciously to come over and enjoy a Thanksgiving lunch with them. That just might not work out with sickness going through our household, which would be a pity because we were looking forward to it. Uh, it also might not work out for us to go to church if we're sick. It sounds like a lot of other families at church have it going around their households as well, and we don't want to spread it. 
right? Any of us that might not be feeling the worst, but we're still carrying it. We don't want to spread it. We don't want to give it to anybody else. And this really isn't about COVID. Uh, I don't think it's COVID. I think it's probably just a seasonal flu or cold. Uh, it could be COVID 2024 for all we know. And maybe it's just, uh, you know, it's what it is. Everybody's got their sense of taste and smell. And it's nothing, you know, just awful like COVID-19 was. But whether, whatever it is, whatever it is, it's not fun. And we don't want to give it to anybody. And this really gets to the difference between conservatives and small government types and, on the other hand, progressives, big government types. You can have a Republican who is a big government type who thinks that government is the solution to most problems. We need good governance to sol- solution uh, you know, problems that the governed just can't figure out on their own, right? They have to be told what to do. You can have, but I think it's very rare, Democrats who are for smaller government, right? Not everybody's for the same size government. Not everybody agrees on when a government solution is warranted just because they're a Democrat. And not everybody agrees on what the solution the government should be proposing or mandating is, even if they are for big government solutions, The interesting difference, though, the interesting difference, the key critical difference between conservatives, American style, and progressives or leftists increasingly, decreasingly do you have progressives in a sense that our grandparents would recognize them, but increasingly we have leftists who dominate the other side of the political debate, if you want to call it that. They don't really want to debate very often. They want to shout down debates and shut down debates. And they want government solutions to that as well. They, they want a government solution to debate by just saying, there's no debate. We mandate that everybody has to not just do and not do what we say. Everybody has to think and feel how we say and believe what we say. But the difference between conservatives, rightly understood, and progressives is not that progressives recognize that there are problems and conservatives don't. It's not that progressives have solutions and conservatives don't. It's the paradigm. It's the presupposition that the individual has the capacity and needs to exercise that capacity, like a muscle, to make decisions, to make determinations, to recognize problems and come up with custom-fit solutions on an individual basis. And so... It's not a problem for a conservative to say, hey, you know, several of the members of my household are sick. We're going to stay home. We're going to elect to cancel our plans and not go to certain things, not go to social gatherings, not go to church this weekend, not have biblical training group tonight. You know, we're going to elect to do that. We're going to make that decision. That's a perfectly valid option for a conservative, for a small government type. It doesn't require the government telling me you must, right? No legislation needs to be passed. You don't have to call the cops and say, okay, you guys, somebody had a sniffle. I heard an achoo, right? I I heard somebody, uh, you know, might have a cold. And so we're calling the cops on you. You're not wearing a mask. You're not taking this vaccine. You're not taking this medicine. You're not social distancing. We're calling the police on you. No, 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 no. The conservative says, hey, you know what? I see that same problem you're talking about. There's an illness, there's a sickness going around, whatever it is, we don't want to give it to somebody. And so we're going to decide to stay home. That's totally fine. 
what the conservative objects to is not the idea of being considerate of other people so you don't spread your illness to them. What the conservative objects to is the premise that the government is necessary in that outcome, <laughs> that the government needs to force that, require that, order that, mandate that, punish noncompliance with that, right? So I'll give you an example. Last night, my mother moved into her new uh, home in Millican. I don't know how long she'll be there, but she is renting a house in Millican, Colorado, after having had her home in Fort Myers, Florida, uh, destroyed more or less. Not destroyed, but but ruined, right? Ruined and needing totally overhauled and renovated. It it not being livable anymore. She couldn't stay there in Florida. And so my brother drove down and got her and brought her uh, up to Colorado. She's been living with him uh, for the past few months since Hurricane Ian. And now she's moved into her new place in Millican. And she had some things that my brother and her brought from Florida. They were able to get loaded into a U-Haul. They've been sitting in my brother's garage. And now that she's got a place across town from him, she needed some help getting those things moved from his garage to her garage, really, for the time being, until she can go through things and figure out where they go and, and clean them up and all that. Just because my family has a bit of illness going around, that doesn't mean that I can't go over and help move some things with my brother. My brother calls. He says, hey, I'm on my way home from work. Can you help me to move mom's things from my garage to her garage so she can go through them and you know, take care of them, clean them up, do whatever she needs to do with them? And I said, yes. Right. I, I went over, helped him with that. I don't need the government saying, oh, no, you can't do that because you've got some people in your household that are sick. Right. That's the difference between the big government types and conservatives, rightly understood, American style. But this is not to say, this is not to say that there's no place for the government to step in and say, you really have a responsibility. We recognize your responsibility. And if something bad happens and you knew that something bad might happen, you are responsible to make things right. If you were being negligent and careless and even malicious, there are consequences, but sometimes you get into situations where there is no risk-free option. Actually, that's every day. Really, you, you drive to work and there's a possibility you have an accident. You get to work and you're working with something important and valuable. There's a possibility that you make a mistake and you damage that valuable thing. But that's the risk you have to run. What's the risk of doing nothing, going nowhere, well, the risk is you die, right? <laughs> There's a risk associated with life that the government can't eliminate. And if it tries, when it tries, it makes a mess of things and it actually interferes with life itself. The conservative, rightly understood, the small government type, limited government, wants to see government operating where the operation of government protects life and not operating where government intervention actually interferes with life, prevents life. And knowing the difference between the one and the other requires wisdom. 
It requires discernment. It requires good judgment. It requires self-control. It requires restraint. It requires boldness to be able to say, not just if you're the government to the governed, no, but if you are the governed to the government, no. Or if you are the government looking yourself in the mirror, telling yourself, no. Speaking of saying no or saying yes, here are the 12 Republican senators who betrayed reality and religious liberty to codify gay marriage into federal law. Blunt, Missouri. Burr, North Carolina. Both of them are retiring. Capito, West Virginia. Collins, Maine. Loomis, Wyoming. Murkowski, Alaska. Portman, Ohio, retiring. Soon to be replaced by J.D. Vance. Romney, Utah. Sullivan, Alaska, Tillis, North Carolina, Ernst, Iowa, Young, Indiana. Twelve Senate Republicans who voted, along with the Democrats, to write so-called marriage equality, I would say abolition of marriage, into federal law, in case the Supreme Court, after seven years, overturns Obergefell. It was a bad judicial ruling. Now, I will say this. Given the way that our checks and balances are supposed to work in our government, in our three branches of government, it would be entirely proper and good for at least the Supreme Court decision in Obergefell to be overturned because that's not the way laws are supposed to be written and passed. The judicial branch is not there to write laws. The judicial branch is there to interpret laws and the way in which the Constitution was interpreted in the case of so-called marriage equality, it was insane. It was nonsense. It was very foolish. It was an act of will, not an act of good jurisprudence. And so at a minimum, it would be good for the Supreme Court to overturn Obergefell because it was a bad precedent. It was a bad judicial ruling. The paradigm is broken, and it is a kind of Pandora's box to say our premise is that two people expressing an affection for one another, living together, having sexual relations with one another, and then desiring legitimacy, desiring affirmation, somehow somehow have a right, have a constitutional God-given right to demand that and to be given it. That they have a demand is enough for us to say they have a right, that they really want it is enough for us to say that they have a right to it. Why? Because they have a sexual relationship because they say they're going to commit to one another. If the premise is when two people have a sexual attraction for one another and they want to and they demand it, we have to give it to them. Well, then, as defenders of traditional marriage, also known as just marriage, argued for the past seven plus years, you are paving the way for the legitimacy of pedophilia and bestiality and everything else. You're not expanding the definition of marriage. You are abolishing marriage because marriage definitionally is a man and a woman. It's not two dudes. It's not two chicks. It's not somebody and their dog. It's not everybody in the neighborhood. To expand the definition is to abolish the definition. Also, to accept the premise that two people just wanting it, we have to give it to them when it comes to not just what is being taken by them, But what that requires on the other end of the transaction, that society now has to affirm this, that's been an absolute slippery slope 
to every kind of tyranny, every kind of nonsense, every kind of foolishness. Because what it requires is enforcement of language codes, the imposition of certain sentiments. You will affirm these two people. Now, you could say, with regards to heterosexual marriage, what's the difference, right? Well, the difference is, in part, one, God instituted it, right? God instituted it. It's in the marriage vows that anyone who objects may speak now or forever hold their peace. The time is now to object. So even the community, the family, the friends around a man and a woman who are getting married can speak up and say, I object. This is why. Here's my reason. This is not a legitimate marriage. Who does that? But they could, right? Laser Wolf might do that uh, from Fiddler on the Roof. But most people are not going to do that. In the case of gay marriage, there's a break with precedent in the marriage vows, where if somebody does say, I do object, I object to these two people being lawfully wedded. They are not lawfully wedded. Since Obergefell became the so-called law of the land, which again, that's not how laws are written in our form of government, but anything can be anything now, you are not allowed to object if it's a gay couple, if it's a lesbian couple. You're not allowed to object and say, no, this is wrong. Before God and man, this is wrong. What is said is you legally are required to affirm it. Even if you are a baker, if you are a photographer, if you are an event planner, in many cases, Christians have been taken all the way to the Supreme Court or to their local state courts because they said, I'm not going to affirm that. And the LGBTQ lobby said, oh, yes, you are, because that's exactly how they interpreted it. Oh, yes, you are going to affirm it. You are legally required to affirm it. Oh, well, that's interesting because according to God, I'm required to denounce it and to call for repentance of it, not to affirm it. So then it becomes a religious liberty question. And then we're on the horns of a dilemma because the folks who just wanted what they wanted don't care. And the folks who just gave the folks who wanted what they wanted, what they wanted, hadn't thought this through or they didn't care. Who was going to object the loudest and the longest and the hardest? That's what they were thinking about. And they were counting on folks of religious conviction being a smaller minority than those who want gay marriage or those who are willing to concede. And now you've even got Republicans who are saying, we are for this. We want this written into the law at a federal level. They're at least using the right branch of government, but shame on these Republicans. And this is why I say there's more to it than just voting Republicans. I, we have to vote Republican, in my view, over and against Democrats. But then I concede the point to those who say, with Republicans like this, who needs Democrats? I concede the point. But I don't concede the conclusion. My conclusion, when I say with Republicans like this, who needs Democrats, is we need better Republicans. But that can't be had if everyone with decency and morals and good judgment and a good argument says, fooey on the whole thing, I'm out. Or if they say, okay, well, that's the way it is. I guess I'll go along with it too. That's how we get into this situation in the first place. And more of the same is only going to get us deeper. It's not going to get us less stuck. Now, you might say, 
these Republicans, just because they're Republicans, just because they're for the rule of law, that doesn't mean they can't affirm a rule of law that establishes homosexual marriage as every bit as legitimate and legally protected and recognized as heterosexual marriage, traditional marriage, actual marriage. You can say, ah, it's still the rule of law. Technically, they are still being Republicans. And I would say, again, it's not enough. It's not enough to be a Republican. This is not a conservative move, except that you do have now conservatives seven years on saying the new status quo is what we're going to conserve. So we don't rock the boat. So we don't upset the people who now think this is just the way that it's always been. It's always been this way. 1984, right? 1984. Let's just change up which great power in the world has always been at war with such and such another great power and which great power has always been allies with such and such another great power. And whenever we change it overnight, our loyalty test is that you affirm that. If you contradict that, well, then it's curtains for you because you're clearly the problem here. The problem is not the lack of truth telling by Big Brother. The problem is that you are insisting two plus two equals four, you rebel you. The problem is your defiance of our mandate, of our totalitarianism. The trouble here with these guys writing it into federal law or voting to is this is actually lawlessness. It's lawful in the sense that humanly speaking, they have the option to do it. And then once they say this is the law, well then, Okay, I guess humanly speaking, you've made your position clear. But in terms of God's law, this is lawlessness. In fact, this is rebellion against God. It's a curious thing that you have Republicans who believe in the rule of law, but they don't believe in the rule of God's law. They don't recognize it clearly. Clearly. Three of these 12, one quarter of these Republican senators who voted for it are retiring. All 12 should retire. They should be done and they should go away. And that's enough. That's enough from them. I say with Republicans like this, who needs Democrats? And this is where too, I mean, unless Republicans were going to win more than a dozen Democrat seats in the Senate in the midterms, it's kind of a whatever that Democrats maintained control, technically speaking, of the Senate. Now, the fact that there is a slim majority in the House of Representatives, the People's House, and that that slim majority of Republicans is going to launch some investigations into the Biden family for human trafficking, for other various crimes, as documented and evidenced on Hunter Biden's laptop, that's a positive thing. That is proper. That's appropriate. That's necessary. It's a good start. It needs to not stop there. It needs to continue on. Also, too, if you're waiting for a Republican majority in the House and the Senate, a Republican majority when it comes to your state and local government, a Republican president, if you're waiting for that, think again, because you can't wait for that. We should hope that the transformation that happens in the heart and the mind of each American man, woman, and child is reflected in good government that honors God, not just in word, but in deed and in detail. We should hope for that, but it has to start on an individual basis. 
It has to start with us reasoning with one another, letting our light so shine before all men that they might see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. And it also has to involve, uh, unfortunately, for the next few years, at least at a minimum, pain being a teacher, the consequences, us suffering the consequences of folly and wickedness. I'm sorry, it just does. And we'll get into it here in, in just a little bit in talking through Trump's announcement speech that he's running for president again in 2024. But he points this out, and I was saying it as well. The American people have not woke up yet. In going woke, many of them have not woke up yet to the pain, the self-inflected pain of these bad decisions we've been making. And not just for months, not just for years, but for decades. We've not woke up just yet to the bad decisions and the need to make better decisions tomorrow. But I'm going to play a brief clip here for you of someone being interviewed. This is not necessarily indicative of everybody's attitude, but it is an example, actually. It's illustrative of the kind of thinking that conservatives warned, faithful Christians warned, American patriots warned would be the consequence of Obergefell seven years ago. Not to say this attitude cropped up out of nowhere. It's never existed before. There's no new thing under the sun. It's not to say that this is everybody's attitude. But take a listen to this young woman being asked some questions about what she thinks of children being exposed to sexualized imagery, sex education, uh, etc., do you think it's good for kids to see all of these sexualized things, like people kissing each other, girls kissing each other, guys in thongs, girls with asses out, yourself? Yes, because if you don't show them this now, then they harbor who they are as they get older. They feel like they're not included in society. So you think sexualized activity should begin with them at a young age? Yes, I mean, I was watching like eight years old. And you think that's good? Yeah. Should the LGBT be inclusive of bestiality? I don't even know what that is. With animals. I mean, if that's what you want, then that's what you want. You would accept that? Yeah. And there you go. There you go. I, now, I don't know who this young lady is, young woman, uh, not a lady. She's not dressed like a lady. She is not talking like a lady. She's not thinking like a lady. She's not a lady. She's a woman. She's a female of the species. Uh, I don't know who the guy is who's interviewing her and asking her these questions. Uh, she's wearing a rainbow-colored bikini, and uh, she's out there in public, and there's probably some kind of a event going on, pro-LGBTQ, plus, 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 double plus bad. But listen to what she says, she says, if that's what you want, right? She doesn't even know what bestiality is, and she, has, she clearly, if she didn't even know what it was, she hasn't thought this through longer than the maybe two seconds, I'm being generous, maybe two seconds that she has between when he tells her what bestiality actually is and she gives her answer. I mean, if that's what you want, then fine. Right. And that's, see, that's the Pandora's box. That is what Matt Walsh was talking about with Joe Rogan. We've abolished the definition of marriage at a societal level. You might still get some individual pockets of Christian community, Christian civilization, conservative holdouts. You might get some individual Christians, uh, you know, man and wife who before God 
And among the Christians in their local vicinity, they honor marriage, they treat it with respect, out of reverence for God, and they have a blessing there. But it doesn't work like Joe Rogan thinks, for instance. It doesn't work like this young woman thinks, that it's just whatever you want, right? Let's let's think about this, right? It's whatever you want. Well, then what's your argument against rape? Well, the other person doesn't want it. Well, yeah, but so what, right? So what? If the premise is that we get to just make up whatever the rules are going to be moving forward because we are the ones in charge now, because we are the strongest, we are the smartest, we are the whatever, well, then so also for a potential rapist or molester, if they're stronger, if they're smarter, they can do whatever they want, right? Well, that's the attitude of the elites, unfortunately. You do have people who are on the list uh, you know, of customers' clientele for Jeffrey Epstein, who did not kill himself, who have not been arrested because they have each other's backs. It's an open secret that they were clientele and they were paying for leveraging their power and influence to get access to people who were vulnerable, young ladies, young girls who were vulnerable, who were taken captive and then used. I would say that this young woman saying what she's saying is logically consistent with the education she has almost certainly received in the public schools, the kind of upbringing she's had and home life she's had. It's entirely consistent with what pop culture is putting out. Yeah, whatever. Do what feels good. Eight years old, I was being exposed to explicit sexual content. I turned out all right. Uh, Did you though? You think maybe you did, but you didn't actually. You were taken captive yourself. You've been molested. You were corrupted. And this is where, again, I mean, the the fatalism that I hear, I think is not warranted because actually it's a big government attitude regarding having come up short with a government solution to the problems that we're talking about. And the conservative is fighting a losing battle, as they say, because you know that you're not ultimately going to conserve what is perishable, but you're trying to be a good steward of it, right? That's a better way to put it. It's a losing battle. That sounds fatalistic. Or on the other hand, you could say these are perishable things, which God, an infinite eternal God has entrusted to us for a time. And in some cases, he's testing us with how we're going to relate to his creation. That includes, but is not limited to our own bodies, one another, material things, resources, time. But the conservative should look at this and say, I'm going to take seriously my responsibility as a parent of my children to train them well, to instill in them good character, godliness, love, self-control, wisdom. The conservatives should look at this and say, I'm going to make reasoned arguments when someone asks me what I think of something, and I'm going to make those reasoned arguments with gentleness and respect, giving a reason for the hope that lies within me with gentleness and respect. What's my hope? My hope is in God. And I live accordingly. And I'm going to continue on living accordingly. And if you punish that, if you try to threaten that, I'm going to keep on doing it anyways, 
And I'm going to prove that that is a more blessed and profitable way to live. And speaking of, Candace Cameron Bure is in all kinds of hot water for giving an explanation, giving a reason for why she left the Hallmark Channel and decided to move over to a new network where she will be doing a very similar type work to what she was doing at the Hallmark Channel. The Hallmark Channel is supposed to be this wholesome, supposedly down-to-earth, sweet, uh, romantic venue. But increasingly, there is a shrug at best or an earnest desire to normalize, along with everyone else, the new status quo since Obergefell. To normalize homosexual relationships, homosexual romance, so-called. As Carl Truman points out in a piece he wrote for First Things Magazine about the failure of a so-called gay rom-com, romantic comedy, romance depends on morality. And so the repudiation of, the rejection of morality also is the death of romance. Romance is dead and you've killed it, LGBTQ allies and adherents. But Candace Cameron Bure, married outspoken Christian. Uh, You might not always (laughs) be sure if she should be saying the things that she's saying about uh, her own marriage and love life. And it's great and wonderful. And my husband and I enjoy one another. And, and uh, you know, our, our married intimacy is great, right? You might not always be sure. I'm not always so sure if I would say that, The same way that she's saying it. But then on the other hand, I think everyone else is talking about their views on these things. And so she's going to say, actually, it's better, right? It's better. There's more enjoyment, more fulfillment, more happiness, more blessing in marriage. If these things are kept in marriage and my husband and I enjoy that fact, we're proof of that fact. We know that fact to be true. And I'm going to announce it. Well, then she announces also, too, her reasons for making a career change, a career move to go over to GAF, which is, I believe, Great American Family. Uh, That's what that stands for. And she says that GAF, Great American Family Network, is going to focus on traditional marriage, and that accords with her convictions as a Christian, and she can have a clear conscience working over there in a way that she can't anymore, working for Hallmark. And there's a lot of Hollywood celebrities who are attacking her, criticizing her, hating her publicly right now for it, saying all kinds of nasty, mean, ugly things against her because she has said this is a factor in her decision. This is why she's doing what she's doing. She's not being mean and ugly about it. She's just stating she's making a value judgment Traditional marriage is better than so-called gay marriage. And I want nothing to do with validating, normalizing, affirming gay marriage. I'm going to go over to this network where they are highlighting traditional family because that's what I believe honors God. That's, I believe, God's intention. And so all these ugly things are being said about her. And that's the other side of the coin, actually to viewing government as God. If the government says you can do it, you can do it. 
If the government tells you not to do it, then you can't do it. When a Christian says, I'm going to do and not do according to what God says, God is God. The government is the government. The government is under God. The government is not God. And God is certainly not under government. There's a visceral reaction because that is so other, that is so offensive to the paradigm. The paradigm is really what's at root here. But before we run out of time, I want to talk about Trump announcing his run for president in 2024. Speaking of paradigms, speaking of differing views on government, speaking of prosperity and blessing, that is what Trump is talking about at its root when he says, we're going to make America great again. He's talking about a paradigm shift that has happened that he wants to lead a counter to, a repudiation of. Now, whether he understands all of what has gone into our current crisis, our decline, as he talks about often in his speech, his hour-long speech, whether he understands and recognizes all of what's gone into the current decline and fall of the American empire, he does point out that the economy was good and strong for everyone when he was president. He really emphasizes the economy. He did this in 2016. He did it in 2020. He really emphasizes the importance of a strong economy for a flourishing American nation, American people. He points out that the economy was strong when he was president for men and for women and for people of all races, of all ethnos, of all skin colors. Now, he makes some claims that I think are dubious. For instance, he says China was put back on her heels for the first time ever when he was president based on his hard bargaining and negotiating and playing the game back at them that they've been playing with us for decades. He says jobs were leaving China for America for the first time ever. Before he had taken office, jobs were leaving America. Manufacturing was moving to China. It had been for some time, and that meant less American jobs, fewer American jobs, more Chinese jobs, more goods bought from China at a premium. Now, that's not true. <laughs> it's not... It's not technically true. He's exaggerating. He's stretching the truth or he's just flat out lying. Jobs used to leave China to come to America in a sense, or at least Chinese uh, were leaving China to come to America, for instance, when the California gold rush was on or when railroads were being built across the United States. There were Chinese uh, migrants who came here for work because the work was profitable and there was plenty of it to do. But nevertheless, he's right that we were bringing American jobs back. We were asserting American self-determination, self-interest to China in a way previous administrations had not been. And it's funny because the predictions when Trump was running in 2016 were that there would be war, World War Three thermonuclear, mutually assured destruction, uh, you know, with him in charge. You don't want this guy with the nuclear football, as they call it. And those turned out to be false, and he points this out. But our rivals and our enemies abroad were kept in check somehow. How is it that Ukraine didn't happen when Trump was in office? How is it that the disastrous 
withdrawal from Afghanistan didn't happen when Trump was in office. These are important things to note. It's good that he points them out. Trump kept his promises. He highlights that. He kept his promises. He said he was going to do certain things. And then by golly, to the best of his abilities, he did what he said he was going to do. And if he didn't, it was because this or that establishment force in politics in the U.S. didn't want him to. They slowed him down. They investigated him. They stonewalled him. They pushed back. They were insubordinate. They didn't want to do it. But he kept his promises. I think that's remarkable, actually, and not to be taken for granted. That is a strong argument for re-election. It should have re-elected him in 2020, truth be told. But now he's promising to make our nation great again. He points out we're a nation in decline with Biden and the radical left descendant. That's true. Fact check. True. But he promises to make America great again. That's his slogan. 2020, it was keep America great. 2016, it was make America great again. 2020. Four, it is make America great again. And he's right. We were strong and we were freer and we were more glorious. Now we are obviously in decline. We were energy independent. We were headed for energy dominance on the global stage. But Biden took office and immediately canceled pipelines. And he made it harder for permitting to be approved for new oil and gas industry projects. And here again, this is the trouble. <laughs> this is the trouble with the big government approach to things is if you are only permitted to do what you're permitted to do, what you're expressly told, yes, you may, then when the government just decides to not give you permission, then things grind to a halt. Whether or not they would be beneficial for you personally doesn't matter. Whether or not they would be beneficial to the community around you, it doesn't matter so long as the person in the position of government authority tells you no, you can't. So elections have consequences. Ideas have consequences. If Biden, or more to the point, the radical left who works him like a puppet, if they say no, we are opposed to American energy, then what can oil and gas companies do? Well, only what they're allowed to do. They can't just go out in the field and start punching holes and do whatever they want. They have to get permits. They have to be permitted. They ask permission and they have to be told, yes, you may. And it's not just a matter of punching a hole in the ground. There are permits every step of the way when it comes to drilling, when it comes to fracking, when it comes to building the facility above ground, when it comes to transporting the oil and gas or disposing of the wastewater when it comes to maintaining facilities, when it comes to refining, all of these things require equipment, which requires construction, which requires permits. And so the Biden administration has been stonewalling the permitting process. Trump points that out and says when he was president, he filled the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Biden has drained it to keep gas prices from going completely crazy. They've gone Fairly crazy compared with when Trump was in office, but to keep them from going too, too crazy so that Democrats can win elections, Biden has been tapping the Strategic Petroleum Reserve repeatedly and also going to countries that hate America and asking them to produce more oil and gas and 
In so doing, he's made it harder for America to produce oil and gas for herself, which is crazy. It's just crazy. It's not, it's not that we are willing to admit that we need the oil and gas, but then when he goes and he asks foreign countries to produce oil and gas, there's your tell. Ah, so we do need it. If we don't need it, why are you asking these other countries to produce more of it? If we do need it, and you're asking those other countries to produce it, why is it better for them to produce it than it is for us to produce it? Because you like them better? Because by and large, the men and women who work in America's oil and gas industry are conservative, and them being successful works against your progressive plan, your progressive program? I think so. I think so. That's my theory. But Trump, for his part, is promising to go back to pursuing American energy independence and American energy dominance on the global stage. That is essential to our economic prosperity. That's essential to our national security. It's essential to the prosperity and security of our allies. It is essential to the deterrence of our enemies and our rivals, period. It just is. He's exactly right to take the position that he does there. Trump is exactly right when he recognizes the critical infrastructure role that oil and gas plays in the American economy and in the global economy. On day one, he says, on day one of another Trump term, he will end Biden's war on American oil and gas. And as someone who's worked in oil and gas here in America for over 10 years, I say, that sounds really good. That sounds really, really good. That is necessary. That's needed. Trump also points out that Ukraine and Afghanistan would never have happened under his watch. And he's right. They didn't, and they wouldn't have. Biden falls asleep in press conferences and public meetings with other leaders. And he calls foreign countries the wrong name in public when he goes to them. He doesn't even have to be on the right continent, Trump says. <laughs> it's embarrassing. It's, it's very, very bad, no good, rotten, awful. Whatever the left wanted to say about what foreign countries thought of Trump and thought of America when Trump was president, there's no defense for Biden and his way of relating and his way of carrying himself abroad. It's very embarrassing. It does project weakness because it's weak. Uh, British Parliament, I forgot about this, but Trump brought it up in his speech. British Parliament actually held President Biden in contempt. They voted for it, and they passed the vote to hold Biden in contempt for the disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan. It was abysmal. It was an abysmal failure. And again, I mean, fall asleep or don't in public, but combine falling asleep in public and calling other countries the wrong name when you fly to them for meetings with their leaders, there was no excuse whatsoever for what happened in Afghanistan. Now, Trump brought up the underwhelming Republican performance, even in spite of all these things, right? All, all of these things can be true. And yet it's also true that Republicans did not ride a big red wave, a big red tsunami to a majority in the House and the Senate in the midterm elections. And he doesn't avoid that. He points it out. Trump says that much of the blame on Republicans is fair, but then he doesn't get into specifics. He doesn't take any of that blame himself. What he says instead, and I do agree with this piece, I think there's more to the story. I think more could be said, more should be said. He says, many Americans don't realize how bad 
things have gotten. And they haven't felt enough of the pain yet, but they will in the next two years. And I think he's right on that. I think he's right. I think he's correct. Americans who kept on voting for Democrats or just stayed home, they don't realize what they've done, but they will. And when they do, hopefully, hopefully, there's still a chance to turn it around. And hopefully they are ready to turn. But nevertheless, all the same. Trump points out Republicans did retake the House of Representatives and 5 million more Americans voted for Republicans than Democrats overall across the country. Predictably, he puts a strong emphasis on hard work and the need for a strong economy. And he's not wrong. There is more that needs to be said. There is more to it than just that. What goes into a work ethic, what goes into having a strong economy, I would say Trump is not always uh, holistic in his recipe for American greatness. But nevertheless, he's partway there. We do need a strong economy. We do need to work hard. And I do like this. This is really, uh, you know, speaking of strength and speaking of hard work, I like that he points out that making America great is not a task for politicians. It's a task for the American people. What's needed from politicians is to get out of the way, to stop suppressing, to stop punishing and penalizing the American people who are trying to work hard and make it happen and stop rewarding the people who are trying to destroy those around them, destroy the country. He also rightly laid blame for COVID coming from China and interrupting America, rediscovering her greatness under his first presidency, his first administration, his first term. It did come from China, and I would say I lean towards it being an intentional release, not an accidental release. I realize there's a whole lot of consequences to that, but there are a lot of consequences to failing to recognize it if it's true also. And yet, another strong position to take for Trump, he says it's not time to be a critic, it's time to get to work. We could stand around and we could complain and we could whine and we could just talk about all the bad things, but we have work to do. We have hard work to do, and we had best get to it ASAP. And that's great. That's a strong position to take. Although, again, there's more that needs to be said, because the work needs to come from a place of renewed righteousness. It needs to come from a place of repentance. And I know that's somewhat implied in what he's talking about, but not sufficiently. And as a Christian, I must say, we need to go to God for that spiritual renewal, for that being restored in our hearts and in our minds and in our souls. Being transformed by the renewing of our minds is a thing God does. But we go to him and we ask him to do it and we submit ourselves to him in his doing it. And then our work can be profitable and to a good end. And it can be good work. Work is work, but if it's going to be good work, it needs to come from a place of devotion to God. It needs to come from a place of right understanding, right relating to our maker and one another. He talks also about the remain in Mexico policy, which I would say is a good policy. If Mexico is just going to let people pass right through and come on in, then that's a problem. If they want to have a good relationship with their neighbor, 
they need to enforce their own borders and they need to help enforce our border with them. He also talked about the border wall. That was a big deal in his run up to 2016 and in his first term. He also talks about trade deals. Again, another strong suit of his negotiation, aggressive negotiation at that. He says that they completed the wall or they were close to completing the wall, but then Biden came in and immediately ordered the dismantling of the wall project. And an important thing to remember, Stephen Crowder was pointing this out when he did his analysis of this speech. Trump is not somebody who is precise in his language. He's a salesman. He's a businessman. I would say that's no excuse for stretching the truth. But you either completed the wall or you didn't. You were either close to completing the wall or you weren't. That's debatable, right? The truth and veracity of the statement is debatable. What is true is there was work being done on the wall and Biden undid that work and stopped progress on that work. And it was a symbolic thing, I think, as much as anything for both Trump and for Biden for both, for both Republicans and Democrats, this was a symbolic thing. Both sides see the wall as symbolic of national self-interest. And the Democrats are opposed to that. And the Republicans are for it, by and large. Uh, another really interesting point that came up in his announcement speech, Trump said, they are going to help Democrat-run cities with their crime problem, whether they want the help or they don't. He said the first time around, his first term, they offered help. And if Democrat cities didn't want the help, well, then they didn't get it. He said, okay, well, we'll let you figure it out. Trump said if he is reelected, his administration is going to send federal resources into Democrat-run cities, whether they want the help or they don't. He calls them cesspools of blood, which is a vivid descriptor. He proposes also... The death penalty for drug dealers, those caught selling illegal drugs. He says 500 people on average are killed per drug dealer who is arrested, apprehended, caught. That's a large number. If that's true, which it should be possible to verify, if that's true, that's a very big number of people. You're talking mass murderer numbers. Uh, 500 people per drug dealer. It's a lot of overdoses. Now, interestingly, we have fentanyl coming in, I hear, I read, from China in particular, and it is killing a lot of Americans. We have other drugs coming into the U.S. from Mexico in particular that are killing a lot of Americans. And I don't know what I think of this uh, Duterte or uh, Bolsonaro approach to combating the drug problem, but he talks favorably about how in China they have quick trials for drug dealers and same-day executions with convictions. And that's a disturbing thought for what it means with regards to due process, but that is definitely <laughs> a hardline stance. He says Singapore doesn't have a drug problem. I don't know if that's true, but he says they're very tough on drug dealers in other countries, and it helps. If you take your life in your hands and you will potentially be killed for being a drug dealer, then maybe you don't be a drug dealer, right? Those Americans 
who object to this, who say, ah, that's, that's awful, do consider that Romans 13 says the governing authority does not bear the sword for nothing. The point of the bearing of the sword is to reward those who do good, to punish those who do evil. We do well to grapple in this subject and all others what the proper role of government is if we're not clear on what is good and evil. That's a very, very important question. And that is at the heart of Christians engaging in the political process is grappling with that. Do we know the difference between right and wrong? Who says that's good? Who says that's evil? Are we rewarding those who do good? Are we punishing those who do evil? That is absolutely the measuring stick for good government or bad government or tyranny or anarchy. Trump also says public schools that teach CRT, critical race theory, will lose federal funding if he is reelected. He pledges to stop men participating in women's sports. He talks rescinding Biden's COVID mandates for government workers in the military, rehiring those who were fired along with giving them an apology and full back pay. I think that is good, actually. I think that's all good. And again, he made a lot of promises in 2016. I think he did a very fine job keeping his promises. So if he keeps these promises, if he's reelected and he keeps these promises, these are good things to have happen. Uh, he also points out, and uh, this one, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know if it's a strong talking point. It might be. But he says he was a victim of the FBI paying for lies against him fake dossiers that then legitimated, legalized their politically motivated targeting and harassment of him and his family and his associates. He talks about how his family and his associates have been through hell since he ran for president the first time, then served as president, then ran for re-election, and even since he's been out of office the past couple of years. And that's true. That is true that he was targeted. His family and associates were targeted. It was politically motivated. It was not borne out by the facts. It was a fishing expedition again and again. One thing after another, it was political persecution because the deep state, the bureaucratic state, was dead set against the reforms that Trump was talking about that were needed, actually, and are still needed. So when he talks about overhauling and uh, investigating the FBI, investigating the investigators and cleaning house, that is a really good thing. His saying he's a victim, I don't know if that's as good a thing, but there are increasingly more and more Americans who are concerned about this, who are concerned that the FBI, the ATF, or what have you is going to show up at their door because they spoke out against CRT or the LGBT or global warming, uh, climate change fights, because they criticized the way the election was handled in 2020 or 2022 or the way it's about to be handled here again in two years. There are a growing number of Americans who are concerned that the bureaucracies of the United States government have been weaponized against them to serve as a kind of big brother. See also 1984. If you're a conservative, you will be on a no-fly list, potentially. You'll be on a terrorist watch list, potentially. The claim that you are a threat to our democracy, so-called, and I quote, will be amplified in the media 
and to your own children in the public schools and through pop culture, you have become public enemy number one for this administration. And since Trump was the most powerful symbol of you trying to push back against the establishment and the deep state, Trump and his family, for all to see, have been subjected to the worst of this kind of treatment, or at least the worst possible of this kind of treatment, given what public figures they are. You know, they haven't been arrested and thrown in prison and solitary confinement like a lot of the folks arrested for even just being in Washington, D.C. on January 6th were thrown in solitary confinement indefinitely, several of them having committed suicide, not given a trial, not having charges officially brought against them, but then their reputations being destroyed, their lives being destroyed, their hearts and their minds being destroyed, and us all knowing about it and not having anything we could do about it. Well, Trump's pitch here is, you reelect me and I'll do something about it. I don't know if he can, though. Maybe he can. If he can, that would be good to see. But again, for those being fatalistic, the people who decide whether he can or can't are us, we ourselves. When we say, let's say, for instance, as I've been talking recently, if we say to our children when they go to school that they'd better just keep their head down, not say anything, not make any waves, not get in trouble, just repeat after the teacher, the school, whatever it is that they say, that's not part of the solution. That's part of the problem. And now I'm not saying we should tell our kids to go in and make trouble for trouble's sake. And I'm not saying we should go in guns a-blazing to our place of work, rhetorically speaking, and start kicking over tables and being a total nuisance. But I am saying we have got to know the difference between truth and falsehood. And we've got to tell the truth and not parrot falsehoods. Now, there's a time to keep silent. Absolutely. There's a time to not cast your pearls before swine. Absolutely. But when you're told to affirm things or you're out, we empower those who are affirming the wrong things to affirm the wrong things along with them, even when we know it's wrong, even when we know that it's false. And this is the kind of hard work that's needed to push back against what has been imposed on us, the, the tyranny that's been imposed on us. There's a totalitarian left that does not recognize your individual rights unless you're the young woman in that interview that I played the clip of earlier in this episode. They recognize your so-called right to do whatever you want sexually, but they don't recognize you having the freedom to earn a living, to raise a family in a traditional way. Not if you're going to say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. No, no. They don't recognize you having a right to affirm that, to make a value judgment, to say that that is better. They react viscerally and also bureaucratically and also uh, punitively. They reward those who do evil and they punish those who do good. They affirm those who do what is evil and they insist on pain of loss of income, social standing, peace that you affirm also or at least keep silent. Sometimes there is a place and a time to be wise, hold your fire until you see the white of the eyes, <laughs> rhetorically speaking. But some of us need to hear that, and a great many more of us need to hear that there is a time for war. And this big Eva 
opposition to culture war. You either have culture war or you have cultural collapse when one side is pushing for the things that are being pushed for. When the side that's ascendant is pushing for the things that they're pushing for, you either have a culture war or you have cultural implosion. And we are currently experiencing cultural implosion. If we're ambivalent about that or if we cheer it on, how is that righteous? How is that godly? How is that honoring? How does that honor either our neighbor or the God who made us? I can't believe that it does. Now, that doesn't mean that Trump is the right choice for 2024. If he is the Republican nominee for 2024, I will vote for him. And I will encourage you to as well. And I will argue that you should. There is no disputing that America was doing better under Trump than America is now doing under Biden. There's no question. I read Jeremiah 29, and I see a parallel to our responsibility before God as Christians. I see biblical principles in Jeremiah 29. If you want to seek the welfare of the city, and Trump is the Republican nominee, and Biden or some other Democrat is running against him, in 2024, you should vote for Trump. But we're not to that point just yet because we need to see who else is potentially running for president on the Republican side of things in 2024. And we need other people to run besides, at least in the primaries. And they need to be good, strong candidates, and they need to be principled, and they need to be promising and then delivering if they are elected on rewarding those who do good and punishing those who do evil. You want to have a strong economy? You have to reward those who do good. You have to reward good work, and you have to punish and penalize bad work. That is how you get a strong economy, and that's where everything gets brought full circle. It's in the mix. It's known instinctively. Augustine makes this argument very clearly in the city of God, when he talks about why Rome was stronger and more prosperous and more successful than the nations around her before her fall. And it's exactly the same reason why Rome fell when she did. Because whether from good motives or ill, Rome embraced virtue and strong character more than the surrounding nations did. Now, quite frankly, because my chief priority is to love and serve the Lord my God, thereafter my wife and my children, and my extended family and my church family, if America is going down, I hope that some other country will embrace virtue and reward those who do good and punish those who do evil. And if America is going to completely implode, I hope that other country will welcome our immigration to it. (laughs) But even better than that would be that America, being where we are, repents of wickedness and folly. The wickedness of saying, do whatever you want, as long as it feels good. The wickedness and the folly of being apathetic and not caring what happens to your neighbor. Not honoring either God or your brother or your wife or your marriage vows are your responsibilities a father and a mother? We need to repent of that. And it's in the mix here. It would be a part of repentance to abolish these ascendant radical leftist 
ideas, these totalitarian drives, which Trump is speaking against, promising to fight against if he's reelected. It would be a mark of a repentant America to control our borders and who and what crosses over them into our country based on what is good and what is true. It would be a mark of repentance to abolish the participation of men in women's sports. Now, if we're going to do that, I think we also need to abolish the participation of women in men's sports. It's two sides of the same coin. I don't know if we're all ready for that, but that's in the interest of consistency, what you've got to do. It would be a mark of repentance for these 12 Republicans in the Senate who voted for codifying Obergefell to be primaried and whether they want to retire or don't, for them to be retired. It would be a mark of repentance for critical race theory to be abolished as something that is taught in American public schools. It would be a mark of repentance for those who are committing crimes, violent crimes, in American cities to be apprehended and to be punished. It would be a mark of repentance, and I don't hear Trump speaking to this enough, for Obergefell versus Hodges to be overturned. It would be a mark of repentance for us to affirm marriage. And I don't know that Trump can do that. Given his track record, given what he said, what he hasn't said, given what he's done, what he hasn't done, it's the single greatest reason that I'm reluctant to say he's the guy in 2024. Because I think that the political strife, the chaos, the totalitarianism, the lack of appetite for public debate, all of it is downstream of the sexual revolution, the legalization of birth control and abortion, the LGBTQ movement, feminism. All of that needs to be repented of as well. And I don't know that Trump has any appetite or interest or inclination for leading that way. I don't think his personal example is strong in that regard. He might be strong when it comes to negotiating trade deals. He might be strong when it comes to threatening a retaliation against enemies and rivals abroad if they act the fool in countries like Ukraine or Taiwan. But he's not strong where I would argue we need the most strength right now. If we want to make America great again, we need to affirm marriage on God's terms again. We need to affirm parents being married and raising their children together under God. We'll get into this soon, I hope, but probably the single biggest reason why I would prefer DeSantis, and I will vote for him if he runs, in a primary, I think he would be a better nominee. One simple reason. It has to do with Mrs. DeSantis. I see a look in her eyes, I see an expression on her face when she does the campaign ad in the run-up to the midterm elections. DeSantis was up for re-election, and he won it in a landslide. She did a little commercial, which we'll play when we talk more about why I think DeSantis would be a better pick. She did a commercial where she talked about her diagnosis with breast cancer and the man she knows her husband to be, who Ron DeSantis is. To her. And I look at that beautiful picture. She's a beautiful woman, and they are a beautiful family. 
And I see the look in her eyes. I see the expression on her face as she's talking about her husband, the governor of Florida. And I'll tell you what, I think that has a lot more to do with us having a strong economy than being able to negotiate good trade agreements with foreign countries or build a wall even for that matter, or threaten China with overwhelming force if they try to take Taiwan. I think DeSantis having a strong marriage actually is more the cure for what ails America right now. And again, like I said, we'll get into more of why I say that. What else I think recommends DeSantis more than Trump in a future episode, in a, I hope, episode soon. Before we close out, though, I do want to leave you with this. There's a piece at The Daily Wire from yesterday by Ryan Saavedra. New 2024 Florida Republican presidential primary poll between Trump and DeSantis shows a total blowout. It's not even close. 66% Ron DeSantis, 21% Donald Trump. If both run for president, who would you vote for? 66 to 21. That's a 45 point lead, which is ironic, actually, given that Trump, as you may know, was the 45th president of the United States of America. The 45th president of the United States of America trails Ron DeSantis by 45 points among Florida Republicans. And I think he should. I think that's a good sign. I think that's a positive sign. Who knows? Maybe DeSantis doesn't run, in which case I think Trump probably is our strongest candidate. Uh, Who knows? Maybe Trump asks DeSantis to be his vice presidential nominee. And I think that would be very, very smart of Trump. And I think that would be very good for America. If Trump is going to be our next president, I would very much like to see DeSantis as his VP. I know Marjorie Taylor Greene made an argument on Twitter that DeSantis should stay exactly where he's at and keep on being a good governor of Florida. Um, You know what? If that's a concession prize, it's not a bad one, but I disagree. An even better option would be either DeSantis at the top of a Republican ticket or Trump and DeSantis. And I think that would be a very unifying ticket for Republicans I think that would be much stronger than them trying to destroy each other. I think it would be much better for America if something, God forbid, happened to Trump, you know, between the next two and six years, supposing he was president, DeSantis waiting in the wings or being the president that follows after Trump. He's a young guy. I like what I see and I like what I hear. And I think he would be really good as a president. But again, we'll save that for future episodes, I'm sure we will be revisiting this again and again over the next several years. Uh, Briefly, I'll mention this. The poll from Saks Media, Ryan Savedra's reporting, says, whose polls correctly showed DeSantis winning re-election by double digits, found that respondents trust DeSantis more than Trump to be a good role model for young people, 89% to 4%, have a moral foundation for choices, 81% percent to 12 percent unite voters around a common cause 76 to 19 percent and be respected by other world leaders 68 to 26 percent those are very large margins very large indeed but that's all the time i've got for this episode i gotta run as always 
Thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.